Hi, I'm Lan Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Mark Graben. Mark is an internationally recognized consultant, author, and professional speaker, and he is senior advisor to Kinexus, a software company focusing on creating and fostering cultures of improvement in healthcare and other industries. Mark is also a popular blogger and podcaster, and you can find his work on his website, markgraben.com, and follow him on Twitter at markgraben. Mark is the author of a number of books, including the book Lean Hospitals, which was the first healthcare book selected as a recipient of the Shingo Research and Professional Publication Award. His latest book on LeanPub and elsewhere is Measures of Success, React Less, Lead Better, Improve More. It's a really interesting and important book for anybody running a business that's gathering lots of performance data, which is basically any business nowadays, and who's trying to make sense of the information they're gathering and trying to decide how to use that data and what to do with it. In this interview, we're going to talk about measures of success and how it can help organizations manage their metrics by not just reacting to noise, but responding productively to real signals. So thank you, Mark, for being on the LeanPub Front Matter podcast. Thanks, Len. It's a pleasure to be back again. Yeah, I was going to say, I usually like to start these interviews by asking people for their <laughs> origin story. Um, however, we've actually already covered that ground in an earlier interview, which I recommend to all our listeners and we'll link to in the transcription of this interview. Um, so instead of asking you about your entire background, Mark, I was uh, just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you've been up to so far in 2018. Yeah, so maybe, you know, just to pick up a little bit, uh, you know, we talked last time about a book that I'd published through Lean Pub, a book called Practicing Lean that was an anthology um, with uh, myself and 15 other authors. And, you know, that, that was a really fun project I enjoyed and appreciated the ability, uh, the ability to do it through Lean Pub as, you know, we incrementally added more chapters to that book. And then, you know, here I, I step back and, you know, I, I still do a lot of work in healthcare, but, you know, I started my career in manufacturing and I've worked with software companies and occasionally, like, you know, this year I've done some consulting um, about continuous improvement um, outside of hospitals. And, you know, you, you know, kind of get reminded of, you know, there's some common themes, at some point, big organizations are like other big organizations, and the way people manage tends to be like the way people manage in other organizations. And so I had had this idea to go back and, and just you know write a book of my own again, um, and and that's what led to this book, Measures of Success, of trying to write something that's not quote unquote, a healthcare book, like the first couple that I had done through traditional publishing were, were very targeted toward healthcare. Um, you know, here for some, you know, professional reasons, and, you know, I'm sort of trying to reestablish, um, I guess, you know, in, in the public eye that um, I haven't always been a healthcare guy. And I'd like to think I have some ideas that would contribute and be helpful in other spaces as well. Yeah, actually, on that note, speaking of other spaces, um, when we were talking just before this interview, uh, we were chatting about an experience you had uh, very recently uh, at a hotel where um, you entered your room and the bed wasn't made. And you were talking about how uh, in, in the hotel industry, often uh, the service workers and the people who take care of the rooms are under pressure to clean as many rooms as they can. And so they've got an incentive sometimes to try to get away with logging data, basically saying they've they've done cleaning that they haven't done. Mm hmm. Yeah, and, and I wouldn't blame the individual there. They're working within a system. And, you know, when we talk about metrics and measuring performance, there's, you know, there, there's a dangerous or dysfunctional side of it when it comes um, to targets or, you know, becoming a quota where good people will get pressured into doing unfortunate things. Uh, Wells Fargo is an example. In recent years here in the U.S., they're running ads, apology ads saying, you know, please forgive us. We've changed. Um, 
because they had a period where their their CEO set this really unrealistic target that every customer should have eight accounts. And like there was this nursery school rhyme to it of eight is great. And I'm like, well, he, he could have also said nine is fine. Like, why wasn't the arbitrary target nine? And so, you know, branch managers and bank tellers started opening accounts without permission. They twisted people's arms into accounts and, you know, created extra fees and all kinds of problems. And so one of the points I make in the book is, you know, we can't just set a target, like if it were only so easy, we just set a target. You need to clean 12 rooms per day or whatever the target is uh, at, at a large hotel chain. You, setting an aggressive target doesn't magically lead to results. So, you know, I think one lesson from Lean and Toyota, you know, it's the responsibility of leaders, as I've heard a former Toyota person say it, and I, I just love this expression, you know, it's the role of leaders to create a system in which people can be successful. And I don't know if that was the case at that hotel the other day, and it seems like it certainly wasn't the case at Wells Fargo. So, you know, in, in the book, you know, I, I try to draw connections between the idea of, you know, metrics, whether it's the number of rooms cleaned per day or the number of accounts per customer, that metric is the result of a system and work processes. And leaders, you may have a business reason to set a goal, but you also need to then work with people collaboratively to improve the system that will uh, allow better results and, and, and not losing that connection. Yeah, this is something I think about a lot. Um, and I think about, uh, you know, the ancient origins of treating uh, the work that's being done as the work being done by a collection of individuals versus viewing what's happening as a system. So you can imagine, you know, in like an ancient Roman salt mine, there'd be a, literally a guy with a whip watching people, making sure that they're digging the salt out all the time. And in that world, and then there'd be someone sitting on top of him saying like, mm -hmm. how much salt did, was dug out today? And if you don't, if you don't give me enough salt, I'm going to, you know, whip you or, or fire you or do something to you. And there, so there's, there's a very deep thing in the view that people have of running businesses, which is like uh, being paranoid about people being lazy, um, mm -hmm. viewing, you know, the, the, the idea that if, if, if work isn't a form of punishment, it's not real work, um, if, <laughs> yeah. you know, if you know what I mean. So that this, you see this manifest itself in various ways, like criticisms of Silicon Valley companies for being too cushy um, or offering too many benefits to their workers or something like that. And there's mm -hmm. a deep instinct, not just in managers, but also in workers to think if it's easy, then it's not work. Or if it's pleasant, yeah. then it's not work. Um, and uh, yeah, I just wanted to ask you, how, how do you, in, in your work, how do you help bring managers out of that? It's a bunch of people that I'm trying to put pressure on view to it's a system that I'm actually working with. Yeah. I mean, that's a really interesting question. And yeah, I mean, you know, for, you, you, you bring to mind kind of the common expression of, you know, people will say things like, well, well, they call it work for a reason or, you know, things like that. Like you, like you said, implying that it's not supposed to be uh, fun or, 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 or be fulfilling, but people aspire to that. Um, and, and there are examples of really successful companies that take a very different approach. There's a, a company in my home state of Michigan, Ann Arbor, Michigan called, Michigan called uh, Menlo Innovations that does software. And uh, Rich Sheridan, the, the, the CEO, president of that company, wrote a really great book called Joy, Inc. 
And the word joy is very specifically part of like one of the, the, the quality gurus, late gurus I really admire, W. Edwards Deming, talked about how people really deserve to have pride and joy in their work. Those are two words he used. And, you know, throughout my career, it's, it's always been sad when people are not allowed to do quality work, when they're not allowed to have pride in their work. I saw this working uh, at General Motors when, when managers would uh, override the frontline workers who were trying to do the right thing for quality and for the customer. And the manager was more concerned about the production numbers. So, you know, th that, that, that was, you know, decades of, of dysfunction there. Um, and it's sad in healthcare when, you know, people don't have enough time in the day to do the right work the right way. And I think that's where, you know, the beauty of, of lean, whether it's in manufacturing or healthcare or in a startup is that for one, it's, it's customer focused, you know, two, it's, you know, this, there's this notion of respect for people, um, that, that it's respectful to, um, create that environment in which people can be successful. Um, one of the, I think, you know, key points in, in my book here is, you know, to, um, treat, you know, d you know, not to, uh, not disrespect people, uh, by wasting their time in the course of overreacting to every up and down in a metric. So I think back to, um, our, we, we, you know, our, 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 our hotel housekeeper example, let's say their goal is 12 rooms cleaned per day. Again, I'm just making up numbers. It's probably higher than that. Um, but you know, not every room is the same. You know, there are some people I'm sure who make a huge mess and there are some people's rooms are very easy to clean. So is a room, a room in terms of being a unit of work and, you know, you, I, I think a, a fair, reasonable, respectful system would recognize um, sometimes people are going to be able to clean 13 and sometimes they might only be able to clean 10. And so how do you create teamwork structures where people can shift work? Um, I see this in hospitals where, you know, they try to assign patients uh, to nurses in a way that evens out the workload. But again, not every patient requires the same amount of time. So instead of, you know, micromanaging each individual's productivity number, you could probably create more of a self-managing, health, self-adjusting, self-healing system that allows people to work together as a team. And again, I think people generally take pride and joy in being able to uh, to work as part of a team. I think that's human nature as well. Yeah, I think this is probably related to a line I found in your book where you write, some of our common management practices as taught in business schools or passed down from generation to generation can actually interfere with improvement. Um, mm -hmm. Is that, are you talking there uh, partly about this idea of like just looking at a bunch of numbers and just trying to increase them or decrease them if they're measures of bad things? Is that, is that? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that, that's, I think one of the dysfunctions because, um, you know, in my book, I, I cite, um, another great quality thinker, management thinker, Brian Joyner, who, who says you know, in some of his different books that when management sets a target and puts pressure on people, there's three things that can happen. Um, and two of these three things are bad. People can distort the system. They can distort the numbers or they can actually improve the system. And so there's a time and a place for setting a challenging goal, but then you need to work with people to improve the system. If you're not doing that, um, you know, you think of another example 
that was in the news in recent years, the VA, I mean, the, the Veterans Health Administration, um, they set from, from D.C. Uh, a target that no patient should wait more than 14 days for an appointment. Now, that's a well-intended goal. But it was completely arbitrary. And the Office of Management and Budget or whatever, the, no, the Office of the Inspector General, I get my acronyms wrong, a different part of the government did an analysis and said that goal was unrealistic. That was the word they used, unrealistic. So people were under that pressure. And all throughout the country, people distorted the system by basically creating a paper waiting list that was off the books the waiting list to get onto the real waiting list, or they would steer people towards dates far in the future that they didn't really want or maybe wasn't good for their health. Or sometimes people just literally um, fudge the numbers or there's this, this wonderful Britishism fiddling the figures. <laughs> but, you know, we, 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 we need to be mindful of that. And, you know, again, in, in my book, I try to really emphasize the connections between improvement and the metrics that that the word results, it's right there in the word. It's the result of the systems and processes that are the work. Um, and you know, I think you know, there's other lessons there of, of connections of not overreacting to every up and down in a metric because that can just end up wasting a lot of time. And um, I, I think using statistics to really more definitively prove if we've improved or not. Like there are many times you could take, you could cherry pick any two data points uh, from a chart and <clears throat> prove improvement. But I think when you, when you understand a few key statistical methods that aren't rocket science, um, you, would, you would look at a chart differently and say, well, looks like that metric's just fluctuating around a stable average. Instead of you know doing the the single data point before and after type comparison that we so often see in the news or in different workplaces. Yeah, I've got I've got a couple of questions about about that. Um, but before um, I ask them, I wanted to talk about a sort of higher level uh, theoretical kind of issue that your book grapples with. Where uh, in, in the in the forward, it's it's sort of mentioned by uh, Donald Wheeler, um, mm -hmm. where he talks about how. There's a difference between the actual system, let's say our actual business, and the data that we're getting from it. And so one of the things is people, the mistakes that people often make is they just assume that there's kind of like a one-to-one -one correspondence, as you might say in philosophy, between the data and the actual underlying system. But when mm -hmm. you're analyzing data, you always need to keep in mind that the data is a kind of fiction. Um, and, or it might be. Or, it might be. Or, 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 well, it, but it might be. But uh. since, since it always might be, you always need to relate to it as though it, as though it is, is, is not necessarily in correspondence with reality. Uh, mm -hmm. And what are what are some? I mean, I, I guess I guess what I'm asking about is this is something I've I've encountered in my life where if you show people a chart, they they automatically assume that this is reality, even if it's a projection mm -hmm. out into the future. Um, what what can what can one do, do to help mitigate that issue where people kind of so easily sometimes conflate what the the image that they see with the underlying reality? That's a really deep philosophical question. That's a good question. Um, but I mean, so I think one. Tell, well, you, you tell me if this answers the question, if I'm, if I'm thinking on this, uh, about this on the same wavelength. But, you know, there's a reality that the underlying – so I think one, one reality is that every system will produce varying results. The question is how much do those results vary? 
And there's some statistical methods that, again, are very, it's simple arithmetic to, to look at a baseline of data and say, okay, here is the range of expected variation for this metric. So that's, that's a, a reality. Is it predictable within a range or not? Now, one of the realities that people might hope for or assume is that when the next day or the next week's metric is put up on a chart and that point is higher, better than the average and higher than any data point we've we've seen previously. And we see this in the news all the time. Oh, well, this is this is the highest number in the last 14 years. That doesn't mean that there is a reality that the underlying system has changed at all. It's possible, you know, so this is where we need some statistical filters, as, as you said in your introduction, to filter out noise so we can identify signals. Um, and, and, and like you said, Don Wheeler, who, who I admire greatly, I was thrilled that he wrote the foreword for the book, um, says, you know, we, managers make errors where they often conf, you know, assume every up and down in a metric means the underlying system is better or worse when sometimes that underlying system, it's just fluctuating. And so I, I, I think maybe is that kind of to the point of what you're saying is yeah. we, we, we might create a false reality based on an overreaction, good or bad in our, in our metric. Yeah. And, and the opposite might be true where there might be a change in the underlying system that we don't detect through some of our common management methods. Like if we um, just put uh, a table of numbers in front of people instead of plotting it as a chart. Like, you know, humans are, are vi generally visual information processors. And we might mask the reality that the system has changed and we should react whether it's a positive change or a negative change using what, what uh, Wheeler calls, and I build upon this in my book, process behavior charts. It's basically a variation of a, a line chart or a run chart that has some calculated boundaries around it that help us see if we have a predictable fluctuating system or if there are identifiable signals that we've either had a short-term blip or change that we need to understand and learn from, or maybe we've had a sustained shift in performance where now, because the system changed, Let's say I'll let's just use a tangible example, maybe from a hospital. Average waiting times might be, uh, you know, two hours. And so we make some sort of change to the system that, you know, we have a hypothesis that says this will reduce waiting time. So we see the first data point says, OK, well, now the average was an hour and 45. We can't jump to the conclusion yet that the underlying system has really, truly improved. We, we have three rules of thumb that we can use, and I lay these out in the book. We, we, we need to look for sustained shifts. So if we found eight data points below the old average, and now it's fluctuating around an average of an hour and a half, we would say, all right, we, we, actually, uh, we actually improved that system. It's not fake news <laughs> improvement. It's not fake improvement. It's real um, justifiable improvement. So there, there's kind of a, a subheading in my book of, you know, are we trying to look at the data um, honestly or are we fooling ourselves and just trying to declare victory? Um, I, I think that's, those are some of the um, things that I'm trying to help people um, avoid pitfalls and, and make better use of their metrics to really understand the truth or the reality of what's happening in their organization. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, going back to, you know, the, the questions I was going to ask you, um, it, it leads me to uh, 
ask, you know, you mentioned that the sort of just looking at the difference between two data points, you know, is something that people can over can react to as though it represents a real change when it might not. And that, um, right. that, that, the question I want to ask is that there's something that actually seems sort of counterintuitive in, in your book where you say that actually daily metrics are better than sort of weekly metrics or monthly metrics when it comes to actual improvement. Um, and I, I, I see the point, but I guess in the context, it seems a little bit uh, contradictory to say that, you know, the, the just the difference between two data points in, mm-hmm. you know, one, one blip of time uh, doesn't necessarily mean anything. Right. And yet, and yet we should look at daily metrics rather than longer period metrics. Yeah. Well, so I think the way to try to break that contradiction, um, you know, I think if an organization has their old habits of overreacting uh, or, you know, reacting inappropriately to every up and down in a monthly metric, well, if you start tracking that metric weekly, you're just going to have four to five times the amount of overreaction. And a weekly metric is going to tend to have more variation from point to point than the monthly metric. And if we convert that to a daily metric, we don't want 30 times the overreaction. And a daily metric is going to tend to fluctuate fluctuate more. But this is where the rules and the guidelines of, of process behavior charts help us prevent that overreaction to noise. So the the what we call you know the, these are calculated um, we call uh, natural process limits, kind of above and below the average. That tells us if this is a predictable system, the metric is going to fall between these two levels. Um, the, those limits are going to be relatively wider on a daily chart because there's a more inherent day to day fluctuation. We calculate those limits based on some baseline data. There's a reason we, we sort of, we, we call a chart like this the voice of the process. It's not what we hope the process is performing. That might be our goal or our target. But, um, you know, we, we, you know, if we're looking for those eight consecutive data points above or below the old average, when we have a daily metric, it only takes eight days to sort of have some of that definitive proof that we have shifted the system. If I had a monthly metric, it would take me eight months to prove a cause and effect system, um, you know, significant shift in a system that's being reflected in performance. So, you know, there may be cost, you know, depending on the environment, um, some cost to gathering data and compiling a metric more frequently. So there may be some sort of sweet spot depending on the business, but, um, the one trap that I see that I see people falling into that really kind of triggered me, you know, that motivated me to write the book is, you know, people in healthcare generally, this might be in the practice of what they might call lean daily management, as that becomes more popular in healthcare. They're tracking metrics more frequently and they're just overreacting more, or they're reacting based on uh, rules of thumb that aren't really helpful. Like, well, if it's better than the target that's green and we don't need to investigate. And if it's red, that's bad. We need to come up with an explanation. And a lot of metrics tend to just sort of fluctuate between red and green. And so you get this sort of, you know, just this, this dysfunctional dance of, you know, you have a bad day generated, but you know, so the underlying system is performing, is performing predictably. It's giving you uh, fluctuating results and it's fluctuating between red and green, kind of 50-50 maybe. And this happens a lot when the goal is set really close to the average performance of the system. Right, right. Not, this, you know, uh, not every day can be better than average. And um, so when people overreact 
to the bad day. They ask people to do root cause analysis. They say, you know, you need to do an A3. You need to explain that day. It, it's, 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 sort of, it's kabuki theater. It's the impression of responding uh, we're, 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 we're going through the motions and people struggle because there is no root cause for that routine fluctuation in the metric. So we tend to come back then a day later or a week later or whatever the tempo of the, of the metric is. And it's sort of now it's fluctuated into the green and people pat themselves on the back and say, good job. When they're, 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 there's just no connection between a lot of that activity and the fluctuation in the metric. And so the point I try to make in the book is that as the subtitle says, if we react less, if we stop wasting time overreacting to all of the noise in our different metrics, we can focus our effort on metrics where there's been some sort of meaningful signal or, you know, and we, we can focus our efforts and, and, and that, that leads to more improvement with, with I think, less effort. Oh, thanks for that that answer. That was great, and that that actually really got to the heart of what I, the sort of philosophical question I was asking before, uh, where you say you know that sometimes there's no root cause, um, and it can be our way of our way of approaching the the, the the processes we have for approaching our data can actually make us think that there are realities that don't exist. Uh, yeah. Well, and I think one very very personal, tangible example, and I wrote about this book in, you know in the book a little bit. Um, you know, go, uh, challenge, you know, somebody, uh, they, they could do this themselves. Weigh yourself every morning. You're not going to weigh the exact same thing every day. And it could be based on what you ate the day before, how much you ate, how much water you've had. Um, there's all these different factors that are just kind of all intertwined and commingled. And like if your weight is 0.4 pounds lower than yesterday, there's no root cause for that. You know, but now if you notice, well, my weight used to fluctuate around an average of 185, and now well, ooh, there's been a bunch of data points, and now it seems to be fluctuating around an average of 190. Now you might say, well, okay, I've I've gained five pounds, as opposed to saying, well, I gained 0.4 pounds today. Well, that's that's kind of a meaningless comparison if it's just uh, a matter of noise in a in a metric, and and that could be, you know, that could be your own body weight. Um. You've got a line in your book where you talk about how leaders should encourage people to collaborate, not compete. And um, that really crystallized for me one of the things I really like about your work. I mean, your books and your and your blogs and things like that, where, um, of, of course, you're talking about numbers um, and statistics. And I think a lot of people, when they start, when they f find a writer who talks about numbers and statistics, they think that they're probably there's some dehumanizing going on. Mm, but in mm -hmm. your work, it's kind of the opposite. You, some, you, you manage to mm. make, the, make the numbers really important, but also not lose sight of the fact that those numbers are being generated by people. Um, mm -hmm. and, that, and that there's, the, there's this interhuman, there's this human inter, interaction that's sort of underlying everything that's going on in a business that isn't run entirely by robots. Um, mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what that's like when you're, when you're doing your consulting work. I mean, how... Can, how do you bring managers back to the people when you've been talking about numbers? Or is that a conflict that you don't find you need to address? Well, I think it depends on the starting point of the organization and some of the culture and the values of the organization. Or it depends a little bit on you know how closely do they live by those stated values every day. Some organizations, you know, every organization has really high-minded values, but whether they 
whether that's the real reality or not, I guess, is a, a different question. But no, I mean, you, you, I like the way you put that. Um, it's it's absolutely not meant to be uh, dehumanizing. Um, you know, metrics are important in business. Um, Deming, Einstein, others, you know, there's there's variations of the phrase. Um, not everything that matters can be measured. And so uh, that I think that's part maybe part of the art of management. And it's a little bit out of scope. My, my book is not a book about um, choosing the right metrics. You know, there, there's an expression that you know I share in the book that um, gets used a lot. What gets measured gets managed. And I think in the two sides of that sentence, there, there's been a lot of books written and a lot of focus around, well, what do we measure? And a lot of arguing maybe about what the goal should be. But, you know, to repeat that sentence, what gets measured gets managed. How do we manage? <laughs> How do we manage in a way that um, allows people to improve their measures? You know, there, there are some other questions that are a little bit out of scope for my book that are really important, like departmental metrics getting in the way. I've, I've heard uh, I, can't, I can't count how many times I've heard. Um, hospital directors, um, you know, say, I know I'm doing, I'm making a suboptimizing decision, but that's what I'm measured on when it comes down to budget or things like, you know, in, in a hospital, you look at patient flow going across multiple departments and we, you know, we don't want an environment where, um, you know, people are being forced to do what they know isn't the right thing for the patient or the, or the customer. And they, they know it's not the right thing for the business, but they're being, they feel pressured or forced into doing that. So we, we don't, we don't want to do that. I, I don't want, you know, I, I you know, I, the books, you know, I, I don't want my book to be used to ma to manage the wrong measures better. So there, there is that really deep and important question for an organization. But, you know, so, you know, John Doerr's book, Measure What Matters and, you know, Lean Startup and other approaches that really get to the heart of what should we be measuring? I, hopefully my book builds upon books like that. So, OK, well, now that we've chosen our measures, let's understand how they're performing, how they're fluctuating and, and, and trying to connect um, our, our systems performance to our goals and in understanding, you know, some of the different ways we should improve those systems. Uh, that um, gives me the perfect opportunity to uh, ask you a question I was hoping I'd get a chance to ask you about, which was um, what you think about Elon Musk's latest move about Tesla. Um, so for those listening, we're in this moment where just a couple of days ago, uh, Elon Musk tweeted out just, you know, look, I'm going to take Tesla private. Um, and the reason he's doing it is because he feels that the things he's being measured on as a as the CEO of a public company um, are not necessarily the right things that he should be doing uh, mm. for the success of the company in the long term. Um, so if this isn't something that you've been following, I'm not going to you know ask you to no, no. make something up. But I'm pretty, oh, I'm pretty well, sure you've no, probably been following I, it. I I mean I I you know I started my. Um, career as a car guy. Um, I, I, you know, first off, I'll say I absolutely want Tesla and Elon Musk to succeed. And when I've when I've criticized some of the things they've done operationally or some of the 
things that have come out about their culture. And I've occasionally talked to people who work or used to work at Tesla. I'm not a Tesla insider. I'm not an expert. You know, I, I criticize because I want them to do better. I'm not a, a short seller who's trying to bash the company. That's one of Elon's things. I don't own any Tesla stock. But um, when, you know, this question of the, you know, the tyranny of quarterly results, there is a real factor there. I can understand why companies would delay going public if that's something they even want to do, because there are a lot of, you know, I think in the manufacturing space, you know, relatively a lot of the great lean success stories have been in smaller family owned companies that can make long term decisions. Point number one out of 14 points in the Toyota Way philosophy, I'd refer people to Jeffrey Liker's book, The Toyota Way. I'm paraphrasing it, but point one says, make decisions based on the long term, even at the expense of the short term. Like that's a really powerful part of Toyota's philosophy. So Toyota is a public company at that same time. And it seems that Toyota is very much like Jeff Bezos and Amazon, a public company. Amazon has very famously said, we are in this for the long term. And when they're, I don't know their quarterly numbers every quarter, but I, I know for the longest time they were losing money. And he says, look, we're investing in the growth of our business. If you don't like it, sell the stock. And so I wonder, you know, if, if Elon could take a similar approach, like we're public and articulate why you're making decisions for the long term and tell people again, like, if you don't like it, sell the stock. Or, you know, if people really don't like it, I don't know much about short selling and um, finance and, and all of that. But, may, you know, maybe he needs to just get off Twitter and just manage his business and let the car. The stock price is a result of the way he's managing his system. Right. Yeah, it's interesting you bring up uh, Bezos there. Uh, that's, I think, very uh appropriate. Uh, he, he made a comment um, in a talk not too long ago saying, you know, some, some analyst, stock analyst um, asked him, you know, why are the numbers up this? What, what recent decisions have you made to improve the next quarter's performance? And he said, look, the next quarter's performance are based on decisions that we made two years ago. <laughs> right. Uh, which was very clever. And it, it leads me to my next question, which is specifically about the, I think there's something about the car industry that's particularly driving Elon Musk's decision because I read a, a fair amount of sort of car industry um, analysis from stock, you know, sort of analysts just as a mm -hmm. hobby. And they just have a very particular culture about like, you know, ramp up the numbers for the next, and you brought this up earlier, ramp up the numbers for the next quarter, ramp up the numbers for the next quarter. And I wonder if maybe he can't take Bezos's approach just because of the very just the very like arbitrary nature of the type of analysis well, that's done in the car industry. Yeah, I mean it's a good question. I, mean, I think some of these targets that he was being kind of held accountable to are targets, arbitrary targets that he set. That's true. We're gonna hit we're gonna hit five thousand a week by this date. That number five thousand is arbitrary. The date is arbitrary. Now they could be looking at a business plan and how they expect to grow revenue. Um, a car factory is very high fixed cost. Um, so there's there are reasons to scale faster than slower. But, um, you know, I, we're, oh, shoot, I lost my train of thought on that. No. Oh, so the di I think part of the dynamic um, has been that Tesla pretty much has a monopoly on 
mid to high end electric vehicles. Like my dad has a Chevy Bolt plug-in electric vehicle. It has the same range as a Tesla. It it's a it's not a, a attractive vehicle the way a Tesla is. I mean, um, it, it so it's kind of a competitor to that. Not really. The Nissan Leaf is you know a very small you know it's an it's an economy car size. It, I don't think it has the range. But the competition's coming. Jaguar's coming to market. Audi. BMW, uh, the others, um, like they've got a window where, you know, if they don't take advantage of that and become so synonymous with electric vehicles, um, it's possible they're the innovator who um, who loses their window. I I don't know. There are different reports and Elon uh, Musk yells fake news about, um, you know, how many people are canceling their orders because they're impatient or they they can't get the. Uh, myth, the you know the mythological thirty five thousand dollar Model Three because they're not really building those, um, you know they they they've got to strike while you know they they've sort of had this monopoly that they need to take advantage of sooner than later perhaps. Uh, moving on to the uh, next part of the interview, I wanted to ask you about the process you used for writing this book. Um, <laughs> uh, you used a little bit more of a bring your own book method for this book uh, on LeanPub. And I was wondering if you could just talk about your approach, because I know you put a lot of thought into it. Yeah. So when I've done, um, you know, so I started with LeanPub basically republishing um, collections of blog posts and podcast transcripts. Practicing Lean was the first sort of like an original content into LeanPub. And I wrote that using uh, the text editor markdown format. Um, I didn't have many, there weren't many images or figures in that book. It was almost all text. So markdown um, was, was brilliant to be able to just um, generate these different formats. With measures of success, with my new book, there are, I don't, I should do the exact count. There are at least a hundred different charts and figures in the book. And I know I could have managed that through Markdown and I, techni- technically that was possible. But part of the, part of my process, so I was definitely doing the incremental, the publish early, publish often approach. I published first uh, earlier this year when it was just the first three chapters and the promise of the rest of the book to come. Classic lean pub. But as I was writing and I was working with an editor and I was also getting input from people I know. So like lean pub, it's great to have the opportunity for somebody you don't know, discover the book and invite input and feedback from them. So honestly, that didn't really happen more than a couple of times where somebody would email me either because of a typo or something was unclear. So either way, that's helpful feedback. I basically wrote the book in Google Docs. So uh, that was great for you know, real-time collaborative editing with the, uh, the contractor that I was working with to get input from others. And then I was outputting from Google Docs as a PDF. So then I was uploading that PDF into LeanPub under the bring your own book format. And then Google Docs also allows you to export the EPUB format, which I could then basically uh, drag directly into LeanPub. And I was using a piece of uh, free software called Calibre or Calibre. I don't know how it's pronounced to convert the EPUB to the Mobi Kindle format. 
So a couple of hoops to jump through, but you know, again, there's the classic Lean Pub functionality of adding a chapter, updating a chapter, fixing typos, and, and communicating updates to those early buyers, the ability to experiment with pricing. And I was fascinated. I, I think four of the first five people who bought the book voluntarily paid more than the suggested price. And that's all that's interesting to see. Sometimes people drag the slider the other direction down toward the minimum price. But, um, you know, that 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 whole process, um, you know, is something that I very much believe in as an author instead of writing the book, letting it percolate for six months or nine months or however long it takes a publisher to get it to press and then th- and then unleashing it on the world. I, I, I love the iterative approach. I, you know, I think you have to be not afraid of getting feedback. Like some of the people I invited to give feedback in that Google Doc, sometimes it was fairly pointed uh, feedback, but it leads to a better book. You know, you don't want to get input from people who are just going to say, oh, that's great. I mean, that's like the trap of any entrepreneur. They tell you in, you know, different startup classes, if you ask your friends or family about your business idea, most of them are going to tell you it's a great idea. But you want people to vote with their wallet. So this idea of minimum viable book or minimum viable product, if I had put those first three chapters out there and nobody ever clicked by, I would have had to do some soul searching about is is this even a book worth finishing? And, and, I, and I think that's what makes Lean Pub very much like Lean Startup um, a, a, a approach. That was, that was a little bit about some of the process and some of the ins and outs of using Lean Pub a little differently this time. Uh, yeah, thanks very much for that really great description. Um, I'm really interested in what you said about using Google Docs, uh, not only to produce the book files that you needed, but actually as a, as a way of getting feedback. Because although we've got forums and, you know, LeanPub authors have, have always used the email, the author feature and things like that, or just mm-hmm. giving out their mm-hmm. email addresses, being able to use Google Docs to coordinate feedback uh, and still use LeanPub um, is something that uh, is really interesting. Um, well, uh, thanks a lot, Mark, uh, for taking the time to do this. Uh, I really appreciate oh, sure. it. It was, it was really fun. And, you know, thanks, thanks for asking the questions about just about my personal interests, which, which I really yeah, appreciate. Yeah, that's to, all right. To, uh, be given your, your expertise in these areas. Uh, so yeah. thanks very much. Uh, congratulations on completing the book and, uh, best wishes for Thank success. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Len. Thanks to everybody at LeanPub. I appreciate it. Thanks.